everybody. Welcome to another edition of Tim's Takeaway. That's right, today we're going to discuss some spinal and head injuries. So I, I think that um, this subject is probably a little bit more controversial or uh, from an educational standpoint, probably a little bit more controversial because um, as we start getting into some of the treatment, we're going to find out that there's a lot of disagreement, at least among EMS educators, when it comes to whether or not we should really be testing to a point of spinal mobilization or what we're going to find out is uh, spinal motion restriction in the use with the backboard. So um, what I will tell you is that if you are working to become an EMT, you will need to be able to test on this. So with that said, it's like, okay, well, then I have to learn it. And that's absolutely true. However, a couple of the other things that from my standpoint is, is that when I teach this from an EMT standpoint or to the end of an EMT standpoint, it is important to understand how we're going to utilize these spinal motion restriction devices and really if we use them as a movement tool. So this is something that you will find as well in the lifting and moving section or the lifting and moving podcast that I have on here. So um, I really do believe that they go hand in hand and we're going to take it from the aspect of what we know is going to be in the books and we're also going to take a look at some additional outside resources that I think I've probably mentioned before but we're going to take a look at them again so anyway let's dive into this we're going to take a look at um, that whole issue of dealing with the head and the spine as it relates to trauma and if we recall that the uh, nervous system is going to be dealing with the brain and the spinal cord. And remember that inside that, there's a lot of fibers that are going to carry information back and forth, right? So we know that there's a lot of nerve fibers that are going to do those things. The nervous system itself is pretty protected. And we're going to come to find out that the brain is protected from the skull, and that is like a vault. And because it's like a vault it can actually cause some problems for us in the future. And from an EMS standpoint, we may run into a little bit of a problem with that. You know, we're, we're very limited, particularly what we can do with that. So despite the fact that the brain is protected by the skull or that the spinal cord is protected by the spinal canal, that we are going to realize that serious damage can occur to the nervous system. So that central nervous system, just to make sure that we're familiar with it, is going to be the brain and the spinal cord. And we know that the brain is controlling the body, right? It's controlling everything. It is truly the center of consciousness. And it's divided into three areas, the cerebrum, the cerebellum, and the brainstem. Now, the cerebrum is something that controls a wide variety of activities. And usually this is something that is mostly voluntary motor function and really some more conscious thought. Whereas the cerebellum coordinates some of that balance in body movement, and the brainstem is going to control those vegetative functions, those things that are necessary for life. These are things that include um, your cardiac cycles, your respiratory system, and, is, and looking at nerve function transmission. The spinal cord, as we said, was made up of a lot of little fibers, billions of fibers to be exact. 
and they go from the brain's nerve cells and they are able to carry messages back and forth from the brain to the body and they do this via gray and white matter of the spinal cord. Now there are protective coverings that we have to deal with. Okay, So the reason that I really want to push these protective coverings is these are things that we're going to see here when we hit into head injuries that can cause us potential problems. So the brain and the spinal cord are going to be covered by thick bony structures, right? Well, the central nervous system is protected by um, an, a protective membranes that are known as meninges. Now, there are three layers that we deal with. We have the outer layer, which is the dora matter. Now, the dora matter is known as the tough mother. It's pretty tough. It's a fibrous layer, and it really is something that contains the central nervous system. The next two layers are going to be considered the inner layers. You have the uh, then the arachnoid membrane and then the pia matter. Now the pia matter is going to be the soft mother, right? So this is what's directly onto the brain and it contains the blood vessels and this is what provides the uh, nourishment and a lot of the good perfusion that occurs to the brain and the spinal cord. Now cerebral spinal fluid is produced inside the third ventricle that is inside the brain and it acts as a shock absorber. So if there's any type of injury that does penetrate all through the all th all through of the all th sorry if there's any injury that penetrates all protective layers then you start to identify that there is some clear watery type cerebral spinal fluid that may be produced from particularly the ears and it can also come out the nose. And if we're talking about any type of skull fracture, you may see it leaking from that area as well. Now, the peripheral nervous system deals with at least 31 pairs of spinal nerves. These are there to conduct impulses from the skin and other organs that are then going to go back to the spinal cord and they also conduct motor impulses from the spinal cord to the muscles. Then you hear people talk about the 12 cranial nerves, right? So the 12 cranial nerves are there to transmit information directly to and from the brain. And from an EMT standpoint, we're probably not going to get into identifying what they are. Matter of fact, I know we're not going to get into what they are, but it is something that uh, the physicians a lot of times will and can detect exactly what is happening with the cranial nerves and if there's any types of problems with them. Now, the two major types of peripheral nerves that we look at are going to be sensory and motor nerves. So the sensory nerves are ones that carry uh, only one type of information, from the body to the brain, and they do this via the spinal cord. The motor nerves carry information from the central nervous system to the muscles. There are connecting nerves that are only found in the brain and the spinal cord. So these are the things that connect the sensory and the motor nerves that are usually with short fibers, and they allow for that great exchange of simple messages. Now, the nervous system controls virtually every body function that we have. And this means that all of our activities, such as reflection, uh, reflective activities, right? So we have some type of reflex, uh, any type of voluntary activities where you are making a point to do something about it. 
And then involuntary activities are things that we can't consciously control. So let's go back and take a look at those, right? So voluntary activities. I'm moving my hands as I talk is a conscious, consciously or a voluntary activity. If I'm looking at an involuntary activity, I just took a drink and I took a drink of water and it is helping with the involuntary activities of moving that through. It is, uh, you know, go down to your intestines and your whole digestive system. It's, this is really what starts to happen as well. Now, the connecting nerves in the spinal cord form a reflex arc. So if a sensory nerve in this arc detects an irritating stimulus, it really bypasses the brain and sends the message directly to the motor nerve. So in some ways, you can take a look at this and say, well, yeah, that would be almost like I put my hand on a stove and I recognize that it, that it was really hot. You know, could this be one of those things where it's now a connecting nerve that forms that reflex arc? Now, the somatic nerve or the somatic nervous system, again, this is that voluntary system, handles all voluntary activities. And the involuntary nervous system or the autonomic nervous system handles the body functions that usually occur without those conscious efforts, right? Those are the things that we had started to take a look at. So we divide those things into um, the autonomic dealing with uh, two sections, right? The autonomic nervous system has two different sections. We have the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. So we've talked about these before. Uh, these were things that we talk about, like, you know, sympathetic's always that thing of the fight or flight. And the parasympathetic is one of those things that you can say, oh, it's rest and digest type issues. So um, if you're looking for more of those, trying to figure out more information about that, really going back, taking a look at shock is probably one of the best areas you can take a look at. I think I go into more detail with it there. Now, the skeletal system that is here to protect it, we had mentioned just a little bit about the skull and the spinal column. And again, we're getting back into these issues in which we realize that the skull is vault-like. And really, the only opening is going to be at the base of the skull, which is the foramen magnum. So that is the area that we have to uh, realize that that's where the spinal column or the spinal cord is going into. Now, the other bones that make up the cranium include um, the occipital region, the temporal, the parietal, and then the frontal bones. So we know that there are different areas that we would have to take a look at. Um, and when we get into the face, you have a whole bunch of other bones, or 14 bones in particular, that you would look at. This is where you look at the cheekbones, and you look at the maxilla and the mandible, and then you start taking a look at the nasal bones as well. Now, the spinal column is here for more of a, a supporting structure, right? This is where the vertebrae are dividing into five different sections. And I think this is when we started talking about, like, how do you remember what they are? You're talking about the cervical, and then you, you go into the thoracic, and then you get into the lumbar, right? Remember us talking about those things? And after you get into the lumbar, then you're dealing with the um, sacral and the coccygeal, right? So we're breaking those things apart. And those are areas during an assessment that you have to be able to identify where there may be a problem. So we know that inside the vertebrae, 
um, they're connected by ligaments and they're separated by cushions called ver intravertebral discs, right? So intervertebral discs. This is when you hear people say that I've ruptured a disc. This is usually what they have ruptured. They have ruptured that cushion in there and that may be why they have a significant amount of pain. But keep in mind, our job is to help prevent any further harm and we also want to make sure that we're doing the best for our patient we're not going to sit here and say well sir i think you've ruptured a disc not broken part of your uh, spinal column we don't know that right they have to find that stuff out with more x-rays and more tests in which we can't handle in the out-of-hospital setting at least as of 2020 when this is being recorded now, head injuries themselves um, are pretty traumatic. It's a pretty traumatic insult to the head, and it can result in some type of either bony structure damage, um, soft tissue damage, or we could also end up as a result of some problems with the brain. Head injuries account for more than half of all traumatic deaths, and these are fatal injuries usually involving the brain. So you got to be alert for the fact that patients may have sustained some additional trauma. There are generally two types of head injuries that we look at, closed and open. Now, closed head injuries, this is where the brain has been injured, but there is no opening into the brain, right? So you can have somebody who has multiple problems. You can have somebody who has that head injury, but you can't see the brain. That becomes the big deal. Open head injuries is where the brain is now exposed to the outside world. So it could be from a fall, it could be from a penetrating injury, but now is the time in which you see the brain matter and that makes it an open head injury. So I don't want you to go back and think, oh my gosh, they have an open head injury when they have a laceration. That is a laceration, an open head head injury means they have to be able to see, you need to be able to see the brain. The brain is exposed to the outside world. Now, motor vehicle crashes are usually our most common mechanism of injury, and about two-thirds of the people involved in crashes experience a head injury, and other common mechanisms include falls, assaults, and you can also be relating to things such as sports-related injuries. Now, scalp lacerations. I think we've almost all cut our heads at some point. And if you had a scalp laceration, you know that it could be really, really small and it bleeds a lot, right? So even those small lacerations are going to um, cause a significant amount of blood loss, could cause a significant amount of blood loss. So it becomes imperative for you to make sure that we can quickly um, identify that this is there and then control that bleeding. Now, a skull fracture means that there has been a significant force that's been applied to the head. And in that case, if it broke open that protective barrier, um, this is then going to be identified as that open skull fracture. So if it is an open skull fracture, again, it means that it is identifying the, uh, uh, the brain matter can actually ooze out or can come out. So we'll take a look at some more issues with that. But the biggest issue, I think, with any type of skull fracture is, is that the damage that has occurred inside the brain. This is a significant amount of force for you to break your skull. So there are different issues that can cause this, whether it is dealing with um, 
uh, bullets, you know, other types of penetrating wounds, maybe a knife. Uh, you could be talking about some blunt trauma that can also cause a skull fracture. And this is when you want to take a look at what different types of things can occur. So look for any type of visible cracks that you may see in the skull. Um, you know, if you have the ability that if part of their head's deformed, you may be able to see um, cracks that literally can occur if they uh, have a significant open wound. You can look for raccoon's eyes, which is bruising that is actually behind the or around the eyes. Um, or you can look for battle signs, which is looking at a black and blue or bruising that is over uh, or behind the ear, right? So it's over the mastoid process. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the raccoon's eyes and the battle signs, right? So those two things have a tendency to not appear to be black and blue for up to four to six hours after the injury. So looking for them, they're not going to be those echomotic or bruising that you would most likely see right away. These are things that are going to, just like a bruise, it's going to occur over time. But it is something you should definitely, definitely need to take a look at because it does give you an indication of the type of force that was used or had occurred in this type of uh, injury. Now, linear skull fractures... Um, are usually what most people will, hear, will have. Those account for like 80% of all skull fractures. And usually in this case, you need to um, find that there are cracks that are inside the skull and or on the skull, I should say, it doesn't have to necessarily be inside it. Um, and x-rays are usually what is needed to diagnose that there is a linear skull fracture. Even though there may be no other physical signs such as deformity, it's the same thing as maybe, you know, there's a hairline fracture of your arm. Depressed skull fracture is something that has resulted from high energy direct trauma to the head. And usually is by a blunt object. Think of maybe a baseball bat. And this is where uh, there is going to be bony fragments maybe driven into the brain, which is going to cause some injury. And patients usually have a neurological deficit, such as a loss of consciousness. Now, depressed skull fractures, I like to, uh, it's kind of tough to describe here. Usually it's great to show a picture. But usually I want you to think of you're running your hands um, over something and all of a sudden there's a dip, right? So it's the same type of thing. You could think of it as a pothole. Um, you're going along the roadway and then there's a pothole. That would be something like a depressed skull fracture. A basilar skull fracture is something that usually results from a lot of high energy trauma. And um, this is something that is usually from some type of a, a linear fracture that also occurs in the base of the skull. So it's really tough to be able to diagnose these things unless there is an x-ray done. This is when you usually find some type of cerebral spinal fluid draining from the ears. This is also notorious for having raccoon's eyes and battle signs. But again, got to keep in mind that those things may not occur as frequently or as early as what you would like to think. Open skull fractures. Talked about those a little bit ago. What I can tell you about it is a very, very high mortality rate because the brain tissue is now exposed to the environment. So that means that as soon as that has happened it is causing a risk of a bacterial infection. Now, traumatic brain injuries are going to be our most serious of all head injuries. And we usually divide those into two broad categories. 
primary brain injury or direct injury and secondary and meaning indirect injury. So that primary brain injury is something that has occurred instantaneously, right? It's the impact from the head. So the head has hit the windshield. A secondary brain injury is where we have an increase in severity because of that primary injury. And this is when you end up with things such as infection or intracranial hemorrhage, some cerebral edema or that swelling, increase in intracranial pressure, um, cerebral ischemia. We may not have enough blood flow there, which is now causing um, an ischemic event. And hypoxia and hypotension are going to be the two most common causes of secondary brain injury. These are the things that are going to actually double our mortality rates. One episode of hypoxia, in this case, identified as a pulse oximeter reading of less than 90% one time will double the mortality rate. means that it will double the death rate. One episode of hypotension, which is identified in this case as a systolic blood pressure of less than 90, will also double their mortality rate. And if you put both of those things together, we're behind the eight ball. Now, we'll get into a little bit of treatment here in a little bit, and I'm going to gonna kind of just chime in here a little bit because it is my show. So anyway, uh, when you take a look at some of these things and you say about hypoxia, what can I do for that? If you put a pulse oximeter on somebody, great. You're using it as a sign. You're using it as something that you're going to be able to see. And if I am treating them and I'm treating the uh, using oxygen to treat them, I would like to keep the pulse oximeter reading above 95%. And if I keep it above 95%, it gives me a little cushion so that in the event that they actually do experience some form of hypotension, or I'm sorry, some form of hypoxia, I have a little bit of time to react. If I keep it too low to just be the minimum, I don't have a lot of room to work. So I like to keep it at least greater than 95%. And by the way, that's not just my opinion. You can actually reference the advanced trauma life support. You can also reference pre-hospital trauma life support. Those are two of the areas that we could take a look at. Also, you can take a look at the uh, Brain Injury Foundation. They also have that as a recommendation in all of our literature to try to make it greater than 95%. But again, we don't want to over-oxygenate them. So we don't want that really any higher than that 100. We don't want to peg it. Um, the hypotension, well, it's a little tougher for us to do, right? It is something that we need to make sure that we're trending over time. But you have control over something, and that is ventilating. You have the ability to control or help control what somebody's blood pressure is like. If you go back and take a look to different issues. If you go back and take a look at CPAP, if you go back and take a look at bag valve mask ventilation, there is clear evidence that indicates that if we provide ineffective ventilations, if we are too forceful, if we provide hyperventilation the way that we're not supposed to, we can actually induce hypotension. We can cause a problem with perfusion. Now this has been documented over and over again, but it seems that this is something that just people kind of have a tendency to forget a little bit. I know when recently in uh, uh, a paramedic refresher class I was teaching and I said, 
you know, let's go back and take a look at just putting non-invasive non positive pressure ventilation, which is CPAP. If you put CPAP on somebody and you're monitoring their vital signs early, it's amazing that you just put them on the CPAP and you can start to see that there is a little bit of change in their blood pressure, that um, over time you can start to see that that blood pressure has actually changed. So it kind of drives home the point that you got to be very careful because the treatments that we provide, there's always a reaction that can occur and sometimes we don't like that reaction. But if we're prepared for it, then we can control it. So taking care of people is is a challenging process it, and it changes every day. Anyway, so we want to make sure that we're watching for those issues as it relates to secondary brain injuries. Okay, so there is also something that is going to be called a coup contra coup injury. This is where the impact injures the first part of the, 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 the sorry, the coup contra coup is somewhere where you deal with there's an injury that can occur to the front part of the brain. And then as the brain falls back against the headrest of a vehicle, it injures the rear part of the brain. So you think of it as a is that whiplash type thing. Remember that the brain moves forward, it strikes the frontal region of the brain. And then as it bounces off the headrest, the brain is stopping again on the inside of the skull. So we have to watch for any type of cerebral edema. Um, this may not always occur for up to several hours following the injury. We have to look at low blood oxygen levels that really can aggravate some type of cerebral edema and can truly um, minimize, can, we, can be minimized by maintaining high oxygen concentrations as I just talked about a minute ago. So monitor them for any type of seizure activity as well. Now, I had started to mention about swelling in the brain. And one of those things that was in the secondary brain injuries is dealing with intracranial pressure, an increase of intracranial pressure. So what this is, is an accumulation of blood that is within the skull, or it's really the swelling in the brain that can rapidly lead to increasing intracranial pressure. You will hear people refer to it as increasing ICP. So what happens is it actually squeezes the brain against those bony little crevices that are within inside the cranium. And it can cause more and more of a problem, right? So we don't want more of an issue. Now, there are a lot of signs that you can take a look at. Remember, signs are things that you see. So abnormal respiratory patterns. One that is most common is chain stokes breathing, where they breathe fat, they, they go through a breathing pattern where they are breathing, they're breathing slow, then they start to speed up, they're breathing, breathing deeply, and then a peak and it slows down a little bit, and then eventually they go apneic, they stop breathing. That occurs for a period of time, and then it picks back up. And it's slowly picking up, deeper, faster, and then all of a sudden it peaks and it starts to slow down again, and then they stop breathing again. A lot of times this is characterized by you realize the apnea, and you reach for a bag valve mask, and then eventually they start breathing again. And you're like, oh, look at what's going on. Folks, they probably need ventilated. They're not breathing effectively. Look for a decrease in pulse rate. Look for... Complaints of headaches, nausea, vomiting could be a decreased altered mental status or a decreased alertness, I should say. Look for bradycardia, non-reactive pupils. 
decerebrate or meaning that extensor posturing. And you may notice there's an increased or a widened pulse pressure. So <clears throat> I'll go on my soapbox for now. And I was describing this to students the other day. And I said, you know, if you're if you're now in an area in which people are talking to you about, um, you know, oh, don't worry, you only need to take a palpated blood pressure. Well, you're not in an area anymore where you need to just take a palpated blood pressure. What I'm talking about, the widening pulse pressure, is only going to occur when you can take a systolic and a diastolic number. And you need to look at it over time. It has to be trended. So what this means is that if I have a blood pressure that is initially 120 over 80, fantastic. My next blood pressure is now 130 over 70. What's happened with those numbers? You've noticed that the systolic blood pressure got higher. And what appears to be the diastolic blood pressure has gotten lower. Now, this is probably, most likely, me exaggerating it. But this is how you can start to tell that the blood pressure is widening out, right? That pulse pressure is widening out. This is what we're talking about. So if we're talking that the only way that you're ever going to get a reading like that is to be able to, number one, trend it over time, and number two, make sure that it's a systolic and diastolic blood pressure. You have to do that. If you go back to shock and we take a look at hypovolemic shock, we know that we have a narrowing blood pressure. I'm sorry, a narrowing pulse pressure, and that makes a big difference as well. So taking a systolic and diastolic blood pressure is an absolute something that you do need to do. It's the only way you can trend things over time. And by the way, with today's technology, most people are utilizing non-invasive automatic blood pressure cuffs, which are going to give you those, those, those readings. If you are not using those, that's still perfectly fine. You're going to have to make sure, though, that you're taking a blood pressure that is going to provide you with the numbers of systolic and diastolic. Now, there is a thing called Cushing's reflex. Cushing's reflex is a, uh, I, I will hear it called a tri, uh, Cushing's triad because it's three areas. They look at an increased systolic blood pressure, a decreased pulse rate, and an irregular respiratory pattern, right? So when you start to see that there is a increased systolic blood pressure, a decrease in their pulse rate, and you see that irregular respiratory pattern, you got to start thinking of Cushing's reflex. And this is usually what is telling you that there is an increase in intracranial pressure. By the way, one other thing that um, I kind of mentioned but didn't um, expand off of is that you heard about increasing intracranial pressure and patients may complain of a headache. Most of the time when patients are having an increase in intracranial pressure and they have changes with their pupils, these are folks that usually we're going to find have already had an altered mental status. And usually they're considered to be in an unconscious state because the increase in intracranial pressure actually changes the way that they're going to perfuse. And the state of consciousness is usually one of those things that's affected. Intracranial hemorrhage means that we have bleeding inside the skull that can increase intracranial pressure. So it's somewhere inside that cranial vault. 
And bleeding can occur between the skull and the dura mater. It can be beneath the dura mater, but yet outside the brain, or it can be within inside the brain tissue itself. So here's where we need to take a look at some terminology. So intracranial hemorrhages usually break down into three categories, epidural, subdural, and intracerebral hemorrhages. We also have subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is now going to be really the fourth one. But when you start taking a look at some of these, the epidural hematoma is where there is uh, blood that has accumulated between the skull and the dora matter. So remember, the dora matter is going to be the outer layer of the meninges, and this is where blood is now produced between the skull and the dora matter. Usually, this has um, actually torn a artery, and this is inside that epidural space. So again, this is on the outside. And it's going to result in, a, in very rapid um, progressive symptoms. So this is usually where the patient has a loss of consciousness, usually immediately following that injury. And often they have a brief period of consciousness. And then they lapse back into that unconsciousness again. And without dealing with that hemorrhage, um, their death is most likely going to occur. So this is that grandma tale that we were always told, that if you bumped your head and then you go to bed and you go to sleep, you're probably not going to wake up again. So you shouldn't go to sleep after a head injury. And we know that that story is alive and well in a lot of areas because you see EMTs and paramedics talking to patients and saying, oh, stay awake for me. Stay awake. Why are you making them stay awake? Is it okay that they sleep? Absolutely. But when we're talking about somebody who has that epidural hematoma, that is the thing that most people are fearful of. Oh my gosh, they're going to fall asleep and they're never going to wake up again. Yes, that will happen with an epidural hematoma. And quite frankly, telling them to stay awake and stay with me is probably not one of those things that's going to help them very much because they are bleeding inside their brain. Or I should say inside their skull. A subdural hematoma is an accumulation of blood that is actually beneath the dora, but is still outside the brain, right? So remember, we had the dora matter. Well, think of it this way. Let me back up. We had the skull. Then we had the dora matter. And then this bleeding is actually occurring underneath the dora. So it's the subdora, but it's before the arachnoid. So it's in between those layers. This is usually the result of some type of strong deceleration force that may have occurred. And usually these are associated with more venous bleeding. So the signs and symptoms that you see typically are going to develop more gradually than with an epidural hematoma. And they can have fluctuations in their level of consciousness. You may start to see slurred speech, those types of issues. And they need to be evaluated without a doubt by a physician to see what else may be going on. Now, an intracerebral hemorrhage is where bleeding is occurring inside the brain tissue itself. Now, this could be from a penetrating injury. Um, this may be something that also is dealing with a rapid deceleration force. And it is something that is deep inside the brain tissue itself. These things have a high mortality rate. Even if the hematoma is surgically evacuated, meaning that they are able to get that out, it can still cause a significantly high mortality rate. A subarachnoid hemorrhage is where bleeding occurs inside that subarachnoid space. So remember, we had the skull, then we had the dora, 
then we have the arachnoid and now this is where the bleeding is actually occurring it's below the arachnoid but right before the pia so that's why it's not an intracerebral hemorrhage at this point this is what may result in bloody cerebral spinal fluid and a lot of signs of meningeal irritation because blood is a potent irritant. Usually this is a result of some type of trauma or they may actually have a rupture of a brain aneurysm. If they have a severe, sudden subarachnoid hemorrhage, this is usually something that results in death. And unfortunately, or fortunately, survivors can occur, can happen, uh, but they usually have some type of permanent neurological impairment as a result of it. One of the most common things that we hear all the time, in uh, today, particularly in today's sports world, is concussions. Now, a concussion is a blow to the head or to the face that may cause a concussion of the brain. Now, this is what is referred to as a mild traumatic brain injury. It's usually closed. There may be a uh, loss of consciousness, but they don't have to. Um, there's some alteration or all of the brain's abilities to function without, um, they have the ability to demonstrate without any type of physical damage actually occurring to the brain. And most patients who have a concussion do not experience any type of loss of consciousness. So this is usually part of the problem. They may have some type of confusion. They may become amnestic to what has happened. Uh, they may have a concussion that's really only going to last for a short period of time. So we have to ask about symptoms of concussions, and we have to look at how well people are responding to that. Um, usually we have to assume that these things of a concussion are going to be more serious. Um, otherwise, they have to, you know, until it's proven otherwise, by a CT or they have to be evaluated by a physician. So these are folks that usually um, experience headaches. Uh, they have photophobia where they're complaining of it's really tough with their light or you know their eyes hurt whenever they're trying to look around. Um, they have forgetfulness. Um, they have ringing in the ears, blurred vision, uh, double vision. Those are all types of things that they may experience as well as uh, vomiting. A contusion, on the other hand, is actual damage that has occurred to the brain and is considered more serious than a concussion. This is where bruising has actually occurred to the brain tissues, usually as a result of some type of blunt trauma. So this can involve um, a long-lasting and even permanent damage that can occur. And it may exhibit all the signs and symptoms of a brain injury, and it is, I don't want to say only a contusion, but it is better than probably a bleed. But, you know, here again, we're talking about damage that has occurred to the brain, so nothing is really good. Other brain injuries uh, may arise from other things, such as medical conditions. You know, you may have blood clots or hemorrhages that occur. Um, there may be problems with blood vessels, and this could cause a potential problem with high blood pressure or other problems, you know, such as spontaneous bleeding in the brain. And these are all things that we have to account for. And sometimes these signs and symptoms actually occur, um, even though they're medical causes, they can occur and present very similarly to those things for traumatic brain injury. So let's take a move into the spinal injuries, right? 
So we know that there is several areas which we talked about earlier. You know, the cervical, thoracic, lumbar are going to be areas that are usually injured in a lot of different ways. And compression injuries can occur from something like a fall or maybe you're talking with a, a direct blow um, to the maybe the top of the head and the forces are now going to push down on the vertebral body. And this is what can cause herniation of discs and compression of the spinal cord and even any of those nerve roots. So motor vehicle crashes um, are uh, pretty common for this. And we have other issues where people become overextended where they hyperflex the cervical spine. And it can damage the ligaments and the joints. You may also have some type of rotation flexion injuries um, from rapid deceleration or acceleration forces. So think of it as any unnatural motion that can result in fractures or any type of neurological deficit is going to be something that we have to consider for a spinal injury. So when the spine is pulled along its length, we call that hyperextension. It can cause fractures to the spine as well as a lot of ligament and muscle injuries that can occur. So when the bones of the spine are altered from some type of traumatic force, they can fracture or even move out of place. So when these things pinch and pull, um, permanent damage may occur. And we find out that people complain of pain. They may have some tenderness. Um, so that's why it becomes important that you palpate that area to identify if there is any type of tenderness that may occur. So anytime that you are looking at somebody who may have a potential head or spinal injury, you really need to consider some uh, high mechanisms of injury. And those things may include any type of motor vehicle collision. And, you know, this could be anything from ATVs to traditional vehicles to motorcycles. Look at car pedestrian collisions. Look at falls for um, adults that typically are greater than 20 feet and kids that are greater than 10 feet. Look at any forms of blunt trauma, uh, penetrating trauma to the head, to the spine itself. Also, if you're dealing with anything that people may have had injuries to their torso, Remember, things are going to transmit um, posteriorly as well. Look at rapid deceleration injuries, you know, where they've suddenly stopped. Um, it's a bad joke, but, you know, watch that first step. Oh, it's not the first step that gets you. It's the sudden stop at the end. That's the type of stuff we're talking about here. Hangings. And then there's also those things where axial load injuries, where maybe falling from a height and landing on somebody's feet um, in an upright position can cause a problem. Um, you know, you may find out that people have diving injuries as well. You're going to have to come in and make sure that you do your full scene size up. Your primary assessment is going to be one of those things that you always want to take a look at. And then you have to also consider some type of spinal mobilization considerations. And this is where I want to move into um, a great resource for you. And this great resource is actually um, put out by the National Association of State EMS Officials. Um, and the National Association of State EMS Officials for, for a number of years now has devised um, some national model clinical guidelines. And what they have done with these is that these are uh, evidence-based um, treatment guidelines that medical directors may be able to um, institute and adopt to use for some type of uh, protocol. Where I'm at is in uh, Pennsylvania, 
and we have uh, statewide protocols. And these statewide protocols follow pretty close um, to the National EMS Clinical Model Guidelines. So if you're in a state or in a location in which you are medical director um, for your services responsible for, for outlining protocols, I would encourage you to you know tell them to take a look at this if they're not familiar with it. Um, it really is going to be uh, pretty well something that you can use to universally treat your patients. It's kind of like the accepted care. Um, and likewise, for students like you who are probably listening to this podcast and getting ready for um, exams, that these are nationally accepted protocols. These are nationally accepted standards in which we can treat people. So they do have a section in here that talks about spinal care. And uh, they adapted these from evidence-based guidelines that were created for pre-hospital evidence-based guidelines model process. So they're looking at these things to be utilized for people who require some type of uh, spinal motion restriction. And the idea of this is to try to minimize any type of secondary injury to the spine and to also reduce any type of morbidity from the use of any type of mobilization devices. So you use it for anybody really who is looking at some type of traumatic mechanism of injury. And they um, actually, you know, do look at the axial loading. They look at motor vehicle crashes. Um, they pretty much like to go off of a, a, instead of the 10 and 20 feet, they just kind of go off, hey, let's go off at 10 feet and see what we can deal, do with that um, for any type of falls. You want to assess the patient, uh, look for their mental status, look for their neurological deficits, find out about any type of spine uh, tenderness or pain. Look for any evidence of intoxication. Not that anybody would ever do that. Um, other severe injuries um, are going to be things we have to look at, particularly with the torso. So treatment, first off, is usually putting a cervical collar on if they complain of any type of neck pain, spinal pain, anything from the top of their head all the way down to their butt. If they're complaining of spinal pain, they get a collar. Any midline neck or spinal tenderness any type of abnormal mental status. And this ex includes, you know, uh, they're extremely agitated. There may be um, a neurological deficit. There is evidence of alcohol or drugs. You know, they can't make a, a continuous decision. Um, look for distracting injuries. Is there a communication barrier? Um, if they have any of those, then you really need to put a cervical collar on them. And really with mechanism of injury, um, and some protocols are saying, yes, you definitely need to make sure that we're doing with it, dealing with those things. Now, if patients have penetrating injury to the neck, they should not be placed in a cervical collar and other precautions, regardless of whether they are exhibiting neurological symptoms or not, should not be done because this can really cause more of a problem for us. If you're dealing with somebody where we have to extricate them from a vehicle, right? After you put a cervical collar on them, um, if it's indicated kids in a booster, a booster seat, an adult should be allowed to really self-extricate. And if it's an infant or toddler who's already strapped into a car seat that has that, that harness built in, you may extricate the child while they're strapped into that. But remember, you're not using that as a uh, transport device. You're using it as an immobilization device. And then you deal with other issues. You know, maybe if they are not able to 
um, stand up and, and move on their own. Then in that case, you can use a padded longboard um, for extrication. And this is something that's going to allow you to lift them um, and slide them over, which is probably more preferable than a log roll technique. But, you know, you don't have to transport people on long backboards unless the situation really warrants it. Um, so, you know, if you're talking about um, facilitating a mobilization because they have multiple extremity injuries or they're unstable and, you know, you have to, you know, keep them on the board because it's going to delay issues, then that's fine. But otherwise, the idea here is that you want to get people on a backboard to use as a device to just move them. That's really the essential part of it. Putting a cervical collar on people, probably the most common things that we need to take a look at. But um, other than that, it, it really is something that um, we have seen come a long way. Um, some providers went from one extreme to the next. Whenever we talked about that, we were finding that people were never getting immobilized. And um, spinal motion restriction really uh, probably haven't put a person on a backboard for a long time unless they absolutely needed it. Um, scoop stretchers work great. That's the way you can pick them up, get them onto um, a better mattress, a soft mattress, and disconnect that. And then you, nice thing is you get your equipment back before you leave the ER. So when you assess these folks, you need to make sure that you're watching for them, right? You want to find out what happened to them, what what com what complaints they may have. Um, you're always going to, until you figure out if they have any type of complaints, um, you know, mechanism of injury may tell you right off the bat that there's, there's a potential problem. So in that case, you need to make sure that you do manual inline stabilization. Just place, uh, have your partner place, your, place their hands on either side of their head. And really all you're doing is trying to keep their head in alignment. Make sure that we get good, line, good baseline vital signs. Control any type of bleeding that you may see. Um, I know some books will um, tell you that, you know, um, patients should, uh, they could be elevated up to about a 30 degree angle um, to try to reduce intracranial pressure. We don't want to see that. We want to actually see patients maintain that intra, or I'm sorry, that supine position. And, um, you know, as medicine changes over time, we do know that keeping them in a supine position is what is preferred. So get a good history, particularly when it comes down to uh, their sample history. If you take a look at their medications, we want to know whether or not they have any type of blood thinners. Um, aspirin even is something we need to uh, potentially be concerned with. Not as much as the other anti, or not as much as anticoagulants, but we want to make sure that we're getting a good history. If you're treating them and you're with an ALS provider and you're utilizing uh, capnography, Usually in this case, we want to keep it on the lower end of about 35 to 40 if we're ventilating them. Um, check for neurological exams. The Glasgow Coma Scale is going to be one of our big driving factors here. And particularly, we're looking at the motor score, where this is the one that everybody hates, where it's at 6. You're looking at the 6 areas. Um, so either they can obey commands, which is the greatest thing. They don't do any commands, which is the lowest, which is going to be 1. And um, when you start getting into decerebrate posturing, that is actually a number two. Flexion is number three. Those are the ones that were, those last three are the ones we're very much worried about. So remember that if it's a one, it's none. If it's a two, it's decerebrate. If it's a three, it's flexion. Those are the three that we're very much worried about. 
We talked about making sure that um, during your interventions that you're going to get baseline vital signs. You're going to repeat those things just like we would normally every 5 to 15 minutes. High flow oxygen um, as necessary. And one of the things with high flow oxygen in these folks is because we want to make sure that um, we're helping them in that shock state. Again, this could be a neurological shock. This could also be multi-system trauma, which is now going to put them into the area of uh, uh, it could be potentially a hypovolemic shock as well. Make sure that we're keeping them warm and we're providing nice rapid transportation to the most appropriate facility. So what other things can we do? Well, make sure that we're establishing a great airway. Um, we had it, it alluded to that a little bit ago and said, you know, establish a great adequate airway, make sure that we control bleeding and look for what their level of consciousness can be. Be aware of Cushing's triad. This is where you're going to be, again, taking a look for the hypertension, the bradycardia. Look at the irregular respiratory pattern, or you're talking about chain stokes breathing. And if this is something that is going to be allowed to continue, it can cause a potential problem. So when we start getting into controlling these things, um, you want to now look at whether or not we need to provide effective positive pressure ventilation, meaning we're going to provide um, bag valve mask ventilation to them, and we're going to at least ventilate them now with mild controlled hyperventilation at 20 breaths per minute. That's right. It's not very high considering that many people say that, oh, that person's respiratory rate is at 20. Yes. So now if we take a look at them a little bit more, we realize most people probably do not breathe that fast. Cervical collars, we talked about just of making sure that we're applying those. They need to be properly measured. Um, if you're talking about um, the newer ones that are on the market today are more adjustable, and I've seen a lot more people go to the adjustable collars as opposed to the several size collars. Uh, but keep in mind, there are several different types of cervical collars that are out there. Um, you may have the uh, traditional Philly collars, the, which are uh, were more foam, and they just had a um, piece of, they, they came in two parts, an anterior and a posterior, or a front and a back, and they had um, a piece of plastic that went down the center to try to keep things in alignment. Um, they came in small, medium, and large, and extra large. And then uh, there's another brand that was out that uh, had multiple, and still does, still has multiple sizes, and they start from baby no-necks, all the way up to tall. Um, and then we have the adjustable collars, which you see more and more people use. And um, this way it uh, makes less for you to carry in your first in bag. Again, keeping these folks um, supine as we're transporting them. Usually you can use a long backboard um, if you have to move them appropriately. Otherwise, you may also find great use of a vacuum mattress to help with people. Um, this is an alternative to a backboard, but again, um, you got to be careful with these just in the way that uh, they're uh, going to move people around, you know, identify whether or not these folks really need to be immobilized. But if they can't move real well, um, this is a whole heck of a lot better of transporting somebody to the hospital with this rather than on a backboard. Patients who are sitting down and they are complaining of some type of uh, cervical or thoracic pain, you know, we can consider the fact that we may have to immobilize them with a uh, seated immobilization device. And this may be something uh, like a vest type device or a short backboard that we can put on these folks and try to move them out of a vehicle 
um, to make sure that they're appropriately treated, right? We don't want to increase the injury. Well, that was always the philosophy. Unfortunately, we find out that the more we manipulate them like that, the more likely we are to cause an injury. Patients who are standing, for the most part, it's easier to just have the patient get in a position that is uh, appropriate for them. However, there is this technique that is called uh, standing immobilization. Now, the times I have used it, I've used it in the past, and I can tell you that I have I use it quite frequently every year. So my population that I have in my ambulance service is a lot of geriatric patients. And it's not an uncommon uh, dispatch for us to get where somebody has uh, having hip pain and we find out that their artificial hip has now dislocated and they are in a significant amount of pain and if I find them standing it becomes very difficult to actually you know move them in a position anywhere so what we utilize then is this standing takedown or this standing immobilization technique where you are um, going to maintain C-spine stabilization at this point and um, you could put the backboard behind them um, you are then taking one arm you're looping your one arm and you're looping it up underneath their um, axilla you're grabbing a hold of the uh, hand holds that are just about the shoulder level on with that patient and then you start lowering them back down and what it does is it gives them a stable position in which you're lowering them back down to the ground you get them in a supine position and now you can appropriately move them and transport them as necessary um, again I've used that probably more often for hip issues and I haven't had to immobilize her c-spine because it wasn't any um, you know dependent on mechanism of injury at least in the cases I can think of off the top of my head so those are things to always consider now um, if you're talking about um, you know we had said about sports injuries earlier and this is one of those other things that you have to have to consider is helmet removal. Should we remove helmets from people? Well, here's the deal. If it's not impending their airway, most helmets can stay in place. But, you know, you still got to properly immobilize them as necessary. Um, if you have to remove the helmet, it usually means that it's because it's full face helmet and you can't get to their airway. Um, if you are realizing that it's going to cause a problem in a way that you're trying to position the patient, if it allows for excessive head movement or the patient's in cardiac arrest, you got to get that helmet off. Usually, removing the helmet is a two-person job. Um, if you're dealing with football folks, people that are in, uh, you know, trainers, stuff like that on a football field, they're going to be most likely able to get those helmets removed very, very quickly. Um, I've dealt with motorcycle crashes, and one of the things that you can deal with there um, is to, you know, you're going to need two people to actually help remove a full face helmet. Um, people that I've dealt with in, uh, I've had hockey injuries, their shoulder pads can become a problem as well. This is one of the reasons why we don't always want to um, remove the helmet because it actually helps keep them in alignment, but getting that face guard out of the way. Um, so, this is something that I would encourage you to make sure that you go and practice. Um, find some folks that have helmets and let's see what we can do with them, right? It's one of those techniques that um, you may need to get a tongue depressor blade on some of these football helmets and pop out the ear pads and it, it makes life a whole, little bit, whole lot easier. So I think that this now concludes another episode of Tim's Takeaway. And this was on... Oh yeah, spinal trauma as well as traumatic brain injury. I was having a little TBI here myself. 
All right. So I hope you enjoyed, got something out of it, and we'll see you next time with another Tim's Takeaway. Take care.